From KUAR in Little Rock, I'm Phil Marriage, and this is Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, now completing our 19th year on the air and still the only program on radio dedicated to the preservation of comparative generational thought. Today's generational guests are all male, and next month the panel will be all female. So what's the topic? Sex drive. My guests today are Dr. Terry Richard. In the 1960s, it was not uncommon for guys to say, if they say no, they really mean yes. If you were in a situation where a female uh, was incapacitated, that they would be taken advantage of. Dr. Bruno Machado. What happens right now is that you can have sex just for fun. You don't need to be worried about be pregnant or another stuff. And graduate student Gary Morris. A lot of the younger people are, are really slowing down on reproduction and kind of foregoing this biological drive, an evolutionary remnant. We'll get started right after the news. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. Our discussion today and next month as well will focus today on male sex drive and next month on female sex drive. As usual, I am hosting today's program, but next month, KUAR's Sarah Kellogg will host the all-female discussion. We will maintain a very respectful and mature focus on just how each of our generations understand their responses to some of the issues we all face about sex drive. First, our male perspectives on sex drive. My guests today are from the younger generation, Gary Morris. He's graduated from UALR with a BS in ecology and organismal biology. Currently, he's in the Master's of Science in Biology program studying the ecology of urban butterflies. He's an avid bird lover, not only owning a pet pigeon, but working at the Raptor Rehab of Central Arkansas. Animal courtship is extremely important to him, and even more so whenever it is compared to human sexual behavior. So, Gary Morris, glad to have you here. Glad to be here. And then speaking from the middle generation perspective is going to be Dr. Bruno Machado. He's a urologist at UAMS. He joined UAMS in 2018 as a fellowship-trained specialist in urinary system surgeries and minimally invasive endoscopic techniques. Dr. Machado sees patients in the urology clinic and is an assistant professor in the Department of Urology in the College of Medicine. So, Dr. Machado, glad you're here, too. Thank you so much for inviting me, Phil. And then uh, speaking from the older generation is Dr. Terry El Guapo. Did I say that right? There's a Guapo. Is uh, Dr. Terry El Guapo Richard. It's Dr. now El Viejo. Huh? It's now El Viejo. Remember, I used to be from the middle generation. I, I know, I know. <laughs> Dr. Richard is Professor Emeritus at, in sociology. He retired it in December of 2016 after 35 years with the University of Arkansas at Little Rock in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology. He has served as chairman of the department for nine of those years, and between years 2000 and 2002, he was the coordinator of the graduate gerontology program. Even though Dr. Richard is technically retired, he still teaches a course or two online as an adjunct professor. And I want to add that uh, Dr. Richard was our middle generation guest 19 years ago on our very first program, and he's been a special guest several times over the years. We've really kind of lost track of how many it is. A very special t thanks to you, Dr. Richard, for coming back once again. It's almost an orgasmic experience. It is. <laughs> uh, how timely. Uh, I, I hope do, that fits in with the thing. It is. I think it does. Uh, very close. I do want to start with you, Dr. Richard, and as I was thinking uh, about the start of this program, my grandfather on both sides, both of them fathered eight children. 
and, this, and they raised them through the Depression years. I never in my entire life, even to this day, thought of my grandfather's, even my dad for that matter, as having a sex drive. It just was not a part of my thinking. But something must have been going on in those days different than we have. I'm, I'm guessing it might have been different. What do you think about that, Dr. Richard? Well, we have plenty of evidence because the movie industry was really beginning to take off back in the 20s and 30s, where obviously there were uh, sexual idols and, uh, you know, Valentino and Mae West and others, and in many cases they made very, very suggestive uh, comments on the movie. I don't think anything kind of meets what we probably uh, see at the present time. There's no doubt that specific areas like college campuses and stuff that wasn't really a topic of discussion. There certainly was the dating and mating game kind of occurred on campuses, but it was not as open. In uh, many cases, that was a byproduct of the kind of level of transportation and communication that was available at the time. It was very common back in the 30s and 40s. Houses had porches, and when, in, when guys wanted to date because they all didn't have access to cards, you would go to the girl's house, and they would have a porch, often with a swing. The way individuals actually kind of got to know in, in individuals and do it was really through a very different uh, mode, and uh, it doesn't mean that the sex drive was any less. It's just that it tended to be inhibited in, uh, in many cases because of uh, oversight monitoring and the, and the positions that uh, they were in. Opportunity wasn't there? Uh, no. There, that, you know, certainly they, you, know, you could make that opportunity because certainly we have lots of cases of individuals who became pregnant and stuff, but they're still not at the same level that began to emerge during the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s. I mean, teenage pregnancy was a, a really embarrassing type of a situation to be in for a teenager to be pregnant. By the time we get into the 90s and the 2000s, uh, teenage pregnancy is an issue but the idea of having a child out of wedlock becomes a norm among uh, you know, many groups within our society. Dr. Machado, let me ask uh, you, is sex drive a biological imperative? Well, Phil, it is. If sex drive is the way that the nature found to make you reproduce, it makes you want to reproduce, because if you need to have to do sex and you don't have a pleasure for it, all right, you're not going to make sex. So, yes, sex drive is a, a biological imperative. From your generational perspective, do you think that the biological imperative has changed any from the biological imperative from years before? Well, as Carrie said before, right now you have more opportunity, okay? It's not only opportunity. You can go to the Internet. Even if, uh, if you want to drive a little bit more, today you have a better car, you have better roads. So you just can, like drive 25 miles or 50 miles to see someone in another city and come back to your city at the same day or the day after. So, yes, it's a little bit different from the past because right now you just have more opportunity. You have more people to pick to be your partner. What happened to the front porch swing? <laughs> well, you still have people that go to the front porch swing and uh, see people and meet people in the in their schools or their universities or colleges all this kind of stuff but now you have more opportunity so you have more you you have like the dating sites websites you have well facebook you have your friend of your friend in facebook that you see and it look wow this lady is a little bit 
pretty. Maybe I should send her a message or something like that. <laughs> so you have more important. You, you, right now, in fact, you widen your focus. You're not only in your city or your school. You can meet people differently because of technology gives you the opportunity for it. Uh, Dr. Richard, is it a biological imperative from what you see? I don't think there's really been any difference in it, but the issue is is that you're dealing with cultural change, that both cultural and technological changes that really have, have uh, opened up more opportunities for individuals to uh, actually fulfill their sexual drive, and uh, as well as some issues like masturbation that it, at one time were really condemned, well, as I growing up in Catholic, like you just did not do that, and now this concept of of masturbation is open and it's an issue that individuals can you know readily avail themselves of you know we had Jocelyn Elders our own pointing out this was an option for individuals to do so there have been cultural shifts and cultural changes in terms of of uh, what is actually available to individuals uh, certainly the technological shifts in terms of access to the internet pornography and and individuals are able to release themselves in ways that uh, were not available in the past. And again, there, uh, another, say, a cultural shift would be not only were individuals limited by transportation and, you know, where they would go, and in many cases, don't forget, back in the 30s and 40s and 50s, people lived in much smaller communities. Mm -hmm. There was more oversight. Uh, in many cases, churches were often central areas that individuals went to to actually meet and, and agreed and got to get to know individuals. So there was a degree of oversight, uh, particularly in terms of religious as well as even familial monitoring that, that we just, uh, just really uh, became revolutionized with the advent of, of uh, access to, to uh, motorcycles, cars, uh, transportation and, uh, and the internet. As he said, just think a little bit. In the 80s, we have like the revenge of the nerds. <laughs> the main motto over there is the guy is a nerd who wants to have sex with women, <laughs> with beautiful women. And they speak really, really open about masturbation. If you get a movie like uh, American Pie, the guy has sex with uh, apple pie. There is the, the beautiful mother that the guy wants to have sex with her as well. And she plays with him, and in the end they have sex together. So even the movies, as he said, j just change everything. Is that a biological imperative? Well, I think it was always there. The mm -hmm. desire was always there. The problem was what the culture allowed you to do it. Mm -hmm. In the 20s, I forgot was the movement, but they have a movement in the 20s, after the Belle Epoque, after, after the First World War, that the ladies went down, they drunk, they drink a lot, have parties with the men, they kiss men's, they did everything with them except for sex. In fact, sometimes they had sex with them, but was anal sex to avoid to be pregnant. And they are like not very well seen by the society, but in the end, they are never pregnant and they still virgin when they marry. And that's a cultural issue with, uh, you know, many cultures really emphasizing that virginity, and you still see that in the Middle East and in Islamic countries and and well, Hindu and, and uh, Buddhist uh, religions also. Although we would suggest the more modern a society becomes, the more the pressure is for them to kind of modernize and there are changes and shifts that begin to occur. But as you well know, in, in some of the very conservative uh, Muslim countries, they stone individuals to death. You know, they're, mm -hmm. uh, they're you know, honor killings, you know, for uh, girls that 
stray from what they say is rigidity. You can't do anything. Well, they had a big problem that a lady went to the f a football game, in fact, soccer game, and they simply arrested her because she was there watching the football game. Well, Gary Morris, uh, same question to you. Your younger generation, do you guys see the biological imperative or what's driving guys at your age? So I'm basically going to reiterate what my other co-hosts have said. And from a biologist standpoint, sex drive is almost the most important biological mission an animal can fulfill. Insects, for example, put 110% into reproduction, live three or four days as adults. <laughs> <laughs> However, taking a step back from the, the influence of society, humans still have this biological urge to reproduce mainly because we're programmed to die. However, we can't always ourselves step back from society. Society's gonna influence us. And so a lot of the younger people are, are really slowing down on reproduction and kind of foregoing this biological drive. I sometimes refer to it as an evolutionary remnant. It used to guide our actions, but more so it's we can ignore it today thanks to technology and the thousands of different ways society can influence our actions. So you think that from a younger perspective, the younger generation can see that biology may not play as big a part in male sex drive? Yeah. And we've also, my generation's a result of the sexual revolution in the 60s and currently being influenced by the gender revolution, which some people just see as like the sexual revolution part two. We're almost changing society to have the younger generation ignore the biological aspect of sex and look at it more as a recreational activity or even yeah. being able to ignore it in total. Well, uh, Dr. Richard, on, staying on the biological part of it, with as I mentioned, my grandparents had eight kids. Do you think that the biological part of it even crossed their minds that, hey, I've got eight kids now. I need to do something about this biology, <laughs> this imperative. <laughs> uh, don't forget that uh, for that particular generation, having large families was a norm. So you're also looking at a cultural area, whereas now is the norms for, like, what is a regular family? The options are, in many cases, individuals now may decide not to have any children, or they could adopt, or uh, they may not marry. So we have, a like, at the turn of the 20th century, something like 13% of Americans did not uh, marry. And now we have a situation where it's almost like 14%. In other words, there are fads and foibles that occur in society, and we're in one of these episodes. And I know that uh, one of the reasons why there was a real drop in the biological sex drive was there, but there was a drop in the number of pregnancies was that there are medical epidemiological issues such as, you know, syphilis and, you know, STDs and stuff. And ultimately with uh, the emergence of AIDS and uh, other uh, STDs that are very, very difficult to uh, uh, cure. I think that it, it actually has placed a uh, kind of a, a danger sign, you know, that individuals are really more concerned about not being affected by it and that there are, another, uh, there are other options that they can employ that, that uh, allow them to avoid the risk factor. And that risk factor was... Uh, present in the past at certain times until antibiotics and things came along and then we see some kind of sexual revolutions and then now we're in a situation where uh, you know there are you know potentially life-threatening or types of diseases that individuals can acquire through 
uh, and mostly through sexual transition, but it could be through some type of, of uh, liquids in the body. And it really tends to be a, uh, something that, that makes the, uh, it shifts the norms. They begin to uh, readjust accordingly to what the risk factor is. So your generation didn't see risk factors? Pregnancy. Just pregnancy. Yeah, we didn't have the birth control uh, pill at the time, Mm -hmm. and so it was, you know, and I don't think there was, you know, we also, uh, later on when I was in college, you know, we went through that uh, kind of, uh, you know, sexual revolution, but prior to that, like, I mean, the, when we had dates, the girls wore girdles. They yeah. were wearing these tight I mean, you know, I mean, you would have a fight on your hand to get the damn girdle off. <laughs> Even if they wanted it off, you were, you know, struggling with it. And you were so exhausted. <laughs> and you just kind of, you know, forget it. <laughs> you know, I think I'll just go home. <laughs> uh, well, Dr. Machado, what about the uh, risk factors in your age group, your generation? Well, my generation was the generation where AIDS was discovered. AIDS came up around the 80s, okay? I was young yet. I was like six years old, well, eight years old when AIDS came came up. But uh, maybe I'm like the second generation that was like worried about AIDS and all this stuff. So for, for males would be thinking about that? Yes. And uh, we got a lot of advertising over us about using condoms and all this stuff. This made people a little bit more worried about that. But I, we have to think that sex drive, it's made by nature to make you reproduce. But right now, we know exactly how to do to not be, <laughs> to, to not get pregnant, all right, or to, do something like that. To not worry about the older generation's worry. Yes. So as he said before, what happens right now is that you can have sex just for fun. You don't need to be worried about be pregnant or another stuff. Well, Gary, are there risk factors for your generation from a male perspective? Yeah, the the risks are there. And it's very similar risks that the older generation had, except they're just greatly diminished. And I think a factor that plays into why older generation families had eight or nine kids is simply there was a chance that you may lose three quarters of them due to and an outbreak of like polio and or, or some diseases. Mm-hmm. And they don't have television as well and the internet. Yeah. And yeah. Stuff. yeah. Oh, yeah, certainly. <laughs> so the risks are there, but we've reduced them enough that a lot of people can just ignore them. Is ignore really something the young people do? Male, <laughs> males anyway, are they ignoring those risk, risk, risk factors? Yeah, it's safe to say young males. Maybe not ignore is the best word, but overlook them. They know that they're there. However, they just overlook them. Well, Terry, in that older generation, was pregnancy enough to stop guys? Uh, yeah, it was a, like, particularly in our high school. I mean, it was one of the things you wanted to do was, of course, have a date. And if you could actually get, you know, like alcohol was often used as a mechanism of really trying to make the inhibitions go away. But it was still, it was just a struggle to try to uh, to really uh, have sex. Their fear was always of uh, pregnancy. We didn't worry too much about uh, sexually transmitted diseases. It just that just wasn't in there. But the the concept of pregnancy, and particularly among females, was dramatic. In fact, I'll never forget in our high school, one of our big football players did get somebody pregnant. They had to marry. Uh, the, the, she has a child, and we just all felt that, you know, like th- that was strange. That was unusual for that to happen because it was kind of like it's a life-changing event. And it really, 
Nintermeda infant. Now, by the way, by the time we get to college, birth control pills had become more readily available. There was a lot more uh, of an attempt to fulfill the sex drive, and um, and we didn't actually have the this kind of trauma of like AIDS and you know death, you know possibly looking you in the face until mm-hmm. it got into the 80s and stuff, mm-hmm. and then that wasn't an issue that really emerged. It emerged among often specific groups of individuals in our society, homosexuals and others, but even then it began to uh, have an Im- impact of disseminating to other groups as well. And it was a really scary uh, a scary moment in American society. And, and I think you can tell by looking at, uh, say, the number of births and, and uh, or even STDs that, whereas AIDS was increasing, others there was a, a, a grad, the epidemiological stats would show that a quite a little drop because of this, there was a fear factor, death was, was mm-hmm. a potential result of actually uh, getting AIDS. We're back talking today about male sex drive. Next month we will have an all-female guest panel along with the special guest host KUR's Sarah Kellogg. My guests today are Gary Morris. He's currently in the Master's of Science in Biology program here at UALR studying the ecology of urban butterflies. Dr. Bruno Machado, he's a urologist at UAMS. He specializes in treating benign and malignant prostate diseases. And uh, Dr. Terry Elwapo Richard, a professor emeritus, emeritus here in sociology, and he retired back in 2016. He's been a longtime guest of the program. I do want to ask you, uh, from a male perspective, and I'll give it to you first, uh, Gary. At what age do you think guys in your age group are beginning to have sex? So the, I'm I'm actually going to sound kind of old and say I actually really don't know exactly how much the the, the much younger generation really start to. Well, you're pretty young. <laughs> <laughs> For my one or two year age group, sexual exploration really started late high school, 16, 17, maybe a little bit earlier. And there was a lot of reasons why it was both early relatively to adulthood and kind of late in terms of past generations. Um, I think sheer exposure had a delaying effect when you just throw something at kids, they get bored of it. So when puberty hits, they don't really have any true desire to go out and explore their sexuality. And another part was the societal impact of, well, if your sexuality deviates from society's norms, you're just going to kind of keep that hush-hush for now. And so the very late gender revolution that I mentioned earlier kind of suddenly opened up this door for everybody who was trying to fit a, a square peg into a round hole. Well, suddenly the revolution opens up the square hole that they can now fit and say, hey, now I can openly explore my sexuality. And there's definitely a shame aspect to sexuality. We as a society are very like, uh, I don't want to talk about this, especially for younger teenagers. So a lot of kids just repress it as long as they possibly can. It, that was my generation. I'm, I'm sure kind of the iffiness of talking about sex drive and sexuality has always been there since day one of human society. <laughs> so you think it was somewhere around uh, late teens? Yeah, I would say definitely late teens, late into puberty mm-hmm. at least. Dr. Machado, what about uh, your age group? Well, it's the same as him, okay? Uh, Gary talked about the 16 years old. It's the same stuff. The problem is before it, you don't even know exactly how it is, okay? I remember some of my friends saying that when they start to have masturbation and the guy talk, 
he was sick because he had ejaculation. And he said, I will never do this again. (laughs) He doesn't even know that people ejaculate. I think it's around the 16, 17 years old. Uh, Sometimes people want to be a little bit more precocious, comes earlier. And uh, I remember a friend of mine who asked his father to go with him to a brothel to have intercourse with uh, with a prostitute. And... uh, but it was not very common. In fact, my generation, I think they are still a little bit afraid to speak with their parents about sex, even being like the beginning of the, the openness of sex and conversations about that. Usually people took more time. In my generation, especially where I came from, people want to have sex with someone they love. So they sometimes just wait a little bit more time to find a girl who wants to have sex with them and not just go to a brothel as it was in the past. I think my generation is the, the one that shifts this kind of stuff. Okay, Dr. Richard, uh, what about uh, your generation when you, you were young? Where, when do you think it kind of started for people your age? I'm pretty sure that the norm was that, that it initiated usually with masturbation. And then... Uh, the uh, object would be to have dates, but it was very, still very, very difficult. We're, and we made out in the back of cars and stuff, but it just usually was very, very difficult to bring it to fruition. And so I, I think by the time we got into college, then it seemed to open up. So, And again, I, I was going to say a lot of times it depended on where you're at. It just turns out I grew up in Texas. And so for the first experiences for almost all the buddies I had that I went to college, we would make trips to the border in Mexico, you know, where there would be bordellos there, and that would be our first experience with sex, in, a, in many cases disappointing, but at least, you know, it was kind of like a male thing, like I said, yes, I did it, <laughs> you know, I was there, so, but, it, but it wasn't this, you know, really great sexual experience that that uh, individuals had. Then it was the dating and mating game for most individuals, particularly those that wound up was in college. So that it, it does isn't that way now. The social media, the technology has completely changed the way individuals meet and ultimately learn to uh, date this individual and, and go on. But the dating and mating generally was a something that occurred in college, and often you met the mate that you were going to you know, marry and, you know, have kids with and stuff like that. Would you say then it was late teens or more or less very late teens, even yeah, early 20s? late teens. You know, some individuals had earlier experiences. We also looked yeah, up sure. to those guys like, you know, the guys, you know, these were the lucky guys, you know, <laughs> that, that, that uh, you know, had, were able to get sex earlier. And then and then uh, the, the rest of us were out there, you know, kind of hunting, <laughs> you know, figure, <laughs> trying to figure out whether or not, you know, we could get a date and, and, uh, you know, there was an old joke. It was that, you know, like dating was like baseball, you know, and the object was to score. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, they, and, but it was just a lot more, uh, there were a lot more barriers to uh, actually, you know, completing the sex drive. And then the, the, uh, I know that, it, that the older we got, the, the easier it got that in terms of just kind of a sexual freedom. And, and you ought to realize that uh, over the last, 30 to 40 years, there's been a really revolution in, uh, as our uh, younger individual noted, that in terms of, of uh, sexual alternatives and that individuals began to 
actually have uh, you know, anything from same-sex to transgender to often bisexual. And so new issues, issues that we never even talked about when we were younger uh, that, or that were closeted, that were you just would not talk about. These issues all of a sudden are, have come very much to the forefront. And uh, they're in some ways intimidating for many older adults. Uh, as a sociologist, I don't I think it's kind of an interesting expression of shifts and changes in culture, and, and they're beginning to occur worldwide. So uh, it's, uh, but it's, it, it is an interesting, it's like social movements, social movements that began to occur, and certainly by the 1970s and 1980s with the sexual revolution, with women really, uh, the changing role of women and really becoming uh, more empowered and opportunities for women you know, we see this dramatic shift towards more of an egalitarian society, and we may see this in your next show that's coming up. Right. You know, <laughs> we'll find out, won't yeah. we? <laughs> <laughs> let me ask, uh, Gary, let me come back to you and, and ask about, from a younger male perspective, how often do young people, young males, think about sex? I think, especially in, early, in the late teens, it's quite often. But not as often what a lot of people think. The biggest aspect of that is hormonal changes. Once hormones start going throughout the body, a lot of young males really can't help but think about it. However, once they kind of reach maturity, about my age in the end of the 20s, it really calms down. We kind of just push sexuality off to the wayside and kind of focus on bigger problems that lie ahead, um, like college and housing and other things like that. Because, like I said after the first question, it's really not a big concern for young people nowadays. Dr. Machado? Well, do you want the truth? Every yeah. day. Every, <laughs> day. <laughs> Every day. And it's not only because I'm working with that, but I can tell you one thing. There is no way that a person from my generation speak with another friend and don't speak about sex at least once or twice during the conversation. doesn't mean that you're going to speak like about sex, but you're gonna say about a lady, you're gonna say about a friend, or you remember that that lady that we used to date, or that I used to date, or you remember that lady from your school or from the university or whatever. You will speak a lot about not not exactly sex, but about sexuality. You will they send you messages like all men, men had some message that they got in their cell phone li about, like, look how beautiful is this lady, or look, this is nice, or something like that. So, or, they, or they just walk by. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. Yes, that's true. There's a lot of jokes, like s sexual jokes that we got. Yeah. In the, in, I, I got, like, my friends always sent to me all these, like, beautiful pictures. I, I, I got another, a message another day that they sent a message like that. All that a man needs to be help is a girl, a house, and a, a liquor. <laughs> and they gave me, and, and it's, it's a simple stuff. And they said like, oh, this is just like a small house, a little bit of liquor, and a woman to make you happy. And they sent this gorgeous woman in the mansion, drinking champagne and dancing for you in all the positions that you can think. Twists herself, yeah. she <laughs> do everything that you can think. So of course, there's, there we are speaking about sex about that. It's a joke, but we're speaking about yeah. sex. This is completely about that. So it's on. It has been on men your age, your generation, um, a lot. 
Yes, that's it. They mem a lot of stuff for Dr. Bouchard. Uh, it's just part and parcel of almost being male to, you know, think about sex or have sexual jokes or, you know, like even with my wife, you know, if I see somebody on TV that I really see attractive, I said, you know, she's really attractive and sexy. And oh, you're so, brave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it takes some trust. <laughs> you know, it takes, takes some trust there. But, yeah, and, uh, of course, it, it, Dr. Machado would probably tell you that, you know, the older you get, there's a variability in terms of, of uh, how males can actually, whether they get, can, can get sexually excited or not. And so normally there's a, uh, an, a kind of an attrition rate, but for some males there is not. You know, it cont- continues to be a relatively important factor, and having a sex or, ho- or having an orgasm tends to be an important element of many older individuals because it's something that, you know, they really look forward to. You know, it's kind of like, or, you know, there's a, the, an old joke about a gerontologist who's in an auditorium and She's talking about sex and about how, you know, some males who are, you know, over the age of 70 have sex, you know, at least two or three times a week, some. And, and she goes, how many of you in the audience? And, you know, there are a number of older adults that raise their hand. And, you go, and some just have it once a month and a few answered. And some she goes, and then some just don't have sex very much. Like, you know, maybe once a year. And this one guy just starts, you know, screaming and getting really <laughs> excited and stuff. And he goes, she goes like... Well, I can't help notice that you're really excited. You know, are you one of the individuals that just, you know, has sex like once a year? He goes, yes, and tonight's the night. (laughs) 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 Well, there was a study in uh, psychology today, I guess, in 2011, and it's not true, apparently, that men think uh, about sex every seven seconds. So... According to this study, and uh, we'll let the women talk about it for the same question when it comes to them, but in this particular study, it said that men think about it about 34 times a day. How does that sound to you guys? When you put it in perspective of 24 hours in a day, 34 times... In one day is is not a lot. That may be. Uh, I'm really. <laughs> That's it. Twice an hour. Twice an hour. That's it. Yeah. Almost twice yeah. an hour. That's at your age. That's at your age. Yeah. What about Dr. Machado? How did the 34 sound close? As I told, I have a bias. I work with sex, so I am a urologist. People come to me complaining about they are not able to have sex and ask me to help them to do it. So I. In, with my bias, I can tell you one thing. I think people think more than that. <laughs> all right, <laughs> but I have my bias because you this see, is my job. And you see all kinds of ages. Yes, I see Does, all kinds of. Do change, you see ages. a change or a, a difference in older, middle, and younger that you see? Uh, yes, uh, older men. In fact, the the people who comes to me, it's it's bias because they want to have sex. All right, so they yeah. are thinking more than that. I got a, a patient a few years ago. He had a renal transplant, all right? And uh, he came to me because he was not able to have sex. So we already know that uh, he cannot have erections with uh, PO medications. We tried injections, didn't work. And I told him, look, there's only one way to do it. We need to put a penile prosthesis on you. So you're going to be able to have sex in the course after that. And I remember that because a lot of people criticize me because I will do a procedure on him, he's at high risk, he uses immunosuppressors, so the chance to have infection, all yada, 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 all this stuff. So we did it, okay? I told him, look, if you put your diabetes under control, 
I will take the risk with you. I will buy your challenge, okay? And he did, okay? So after three months, he came back with uh, his diabetes controller, and we made the surgery. And uh, six weeks later, he was okay. I told him, okay, go have sex. Come back in three months, and let's see what's going on. He came back three months later, and he was happy. Doctor, you changed my mind, my life. Everything was amazing. Now I'm really happy. And so I made a joke with him. So I made two people happy. I said, no, doctor, you made five people happy. <laughs> 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 so uh, as I'm telling you, I had the bias because almost the men, the men that came to me, they want to have sex more than they are having. Mm-hmm. And even I had another patient. He was a, a senior. He's 90 years old. But he was a nice guy. He was like very thin. He's more in shape than I. And uh, he plays golf three times a week. He lives in a senior house, but he is like in shape. And he married a young lady of 86. Mm. He's 90. So, and he was not able to have sex. And he was telling me, look, I was not even worried about that before, but now I'm married. I have a new wife. I want to have sex with her. And I gave him just a, a pill. And he came back and said, doctor, it's amazing. I love it. That's great. And I said, okay, go live your life. Enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Richard, what about the 34 times a day? It depends. Again, the variability as one ages uh, really changes the way that uh, older men really think about it. Some older men lose the ability to get an erection. It doesn't bother them. You know, I remember talking to a colleague of mine, and he said he just didn't have sex and it just didn't bother him you know it was one of these things you just didn't worry about so it was and so I don't think thoughts of sex were something that you know he really focused on other males it's more important it's something they do uh, think about some just as often as uh, someone who is young others it's uh, variable it uh, they may not they think about it at times and then it's, it may not be as important in some cases like, like I said it it's more difficult for uh, to often have an orgasm, and often when that happens, they may try, uh, they're not successful, so they just forget it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And then they wait for another opportunity to come up. But it's like, it's not something like, I gotta do this, I'm gonna, you know, think about sex or whatever, so they just don't do it. Now, I, I gotta admit that there is a pattern that, <laughs> that uh, Dr. Machado mentioned, and it is true. Older males who marry younger females tend to maintain a, uh, a sexual activity at a, a greater rate and a higher rate and almost at the same rate as they would uh, when they're younger. So it's a, a you know, a, sometimes it's a, a, a different situation that they find themselves in. A, an older male who marries a younger female and this, you know, keeps that sex drive and that, that interest in sex, you know, really going. Well, now, uh, Dr. Richard, you and I are both about the same age. I'm 70. And we have a perspective that the two others, being so much younger, don't have. But I can, I can remember being about 20 years old and having a hard time not thinking about sex. <laughs> and that is not a problem anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, from that, and I know this may be a side thing to that, but when men think about sex as often as they do, younger, middle, and older, sometimes it changes their life from their activities or their choices that they make because of that. So let me ask that question. How can male sex drive impact your life positively and negatively? Uh, Dr. Richard? 
Well, like I said, I think there there's always a threat when um, if, if when an individual has a pretty strong sex drive, there are temptations that that emerge in uh, personal relationships that it can actually affect the the uh, a family or the marital relationship, and that's something that is a negative that can happen. In some cases, it's uh, um, now, females also go through uh, a shift as well. There's not as much uh, lubrication. Uh, in many cases, it can become painful. And so uh, for a male that wants to continue to maintain a uh, strong sexual interaction, the fact is that he's also got to think about his partner. In many cases, that it changes the dynamics. And so individuals have to think of other alternatives. It could be masturbation, could be watching internet, pornography, or you know. So other options now are available. In the past, it would be a whole different situation. As I've uh, lived life, there's been a several times when I've heard some guys say, I was thinking with my little head instead of my big head. <laughs> <laughs> Ever heard yeah. that one? Yeah. Of course. This is a one. <laughs> that's why I asked the question, um, how does sex drive from a man change the way they make decisions in life? Well, it changed a lot. In fact, the truth is that there's what is a normal stuff and what is excessive stuff, okay? There are people, they think normally about sex, all right? If they are working, they are not even thinking. When I'm on the OR having a surgery, doesn't matter if if Miss America comes in, yeah. I don't care, all right, because I'm focused on that. But there are some people, they are not focused, so focused as this way. And if a beautiful woman passes in, the, in their job, they simply stop everything and go there to flirt with them and sometimes even be a, inappropriate, all right? Mm -hmm. We know about that. And uh, so these people, they have some kind of deviation of the norm, all right? They sometimes it's even pathological, the way they think about sex and they deal with sex. So for these people, of course, this changes everything. They can be married and they will have a lot of mistress. They will f spend their money. It's like an addiction, as a gamble addiction or something like that. But for the normal person, all right, for the average, all right, I don't think makes a lot of difference because you're going to be able to focus focus it on that area and that thing and just forget it just would think about sex when you are in your happy hour or with your wife or with your friends and you'll be able to focus on other stuff well gary morris um, how about that for younger guys when you're thinking classic phrase when hormones start running inhibitions go out the window when guys start getting more and more excited, they start making less and less logical decisions. Um, and certainly, people can become compulsive on these decisions, and they can become obsessive about them. Sex addicts. And even in some cases, can just almost be scared of, of doing it ever in fear of becoming an addict. Especially in the younger generation that may not really have seen the world fully. These decisions, it's, it's usually one or the other. They can either illogically act on these impulses and, and do something inappropriate like catcalling or stuff like that. Or they can just almost treat these impulses as like something to be afraid of and just kind of uh, su keep suppressing them over and over again until they can somehow act on these urges in privately. I have a responsibility to, be to use the word responsibility when talking about male sex drive. How has male sex drive 
responsibility to women in in sex related uh, activities. What has has changed if in the way of male responsibility, Dr. Richard? In the past, it was uh, there was this perception that if you engaged in sex and you actually got someone pregnant, you really had a responsibility to really consider marriage. You know that that this was something that you were bound to. It, it, there was no thought about are you going to be happy for the rest of your life or what. It was just like this was a responsibility. It then uh, shifted to changing norms where m- many women could get pregnant but have a child on their own. And what we saw in many cases, and you could look at the, the uh, birth statistic, vital statistics, and you would find uh, many females, particularly among some minority groups, where they, the, the norm was having a child but not really getting married at all. I know that, uh, and what we have seen over the last 10 to 20 years, and in particularly over this last couple of years with the Me Too movement, is that women are empowered to want to take control of their own life, not be abused, not to be uh, sexual objects. And, that, uh, and there's no doubt that uh, women, particularly in, in our time, you know, were, and, and they are now, they still are viewed as sexual objects, but they're, they're, this responsibility issue is different, where now we are thinking in terms of, no, this is on me. I, I, I'm not going to, you know, I may view this person as a sexual object, but this does not give me a right to act upon that, to, to make her embarrassed, to make her uncomfortable, and that has to be a mutual, agreed uh, type of consensual relationship. From what you just said, did you see that as you were younger in, among the no. men? I don't think it was as uh, present. You certainly wanted it to be consensual, but that there was a uh, a lot of myths about uh, sex. And I mean, I can I'll never forget, say in the 1960s and stuff, that it was not uncommon for guys to say, if they say no, they really mean yes, and to take advantage of it. And that if you could, if you were in a situation where a female uh, passed out or uh, was uh, incapacitated that they would be taken advantage of you know and, and and in many cases these were situations that scarred these women and there was no thought uh, by the guys there was no sense of that my responsibility towards her is not to do this this is not ethically correct there wasn't the same type of gender socialization among males to make them think about what is the impact, the psychological impact, the physiological impact of a male doing this to somebody without their consent? Mm-hmm. Dr. Machado? Uh, we can see that in the movies. As I told you before, at the movies they used to say, look, we are in the college, they do parties, and what is the first thing that the males do? They buy a lot of liquor and alcohol to make women completely out of their minds and be able to take advantage of it. This is not something that is not over there. If you get like the movies from the 90s and 80s, you can see that. America Pie, Porks, whatever movie that you see about college, they use the same tactics to, to be able to have sex with females. And you can even think about like, a, there's a famous, famous episode with Mike Tyson. He got a lady and he invited her to go to the, his room at the hotel. They start to make out 
And in the end, she decided to say, no, it's Mike Tyson. He's yeah. strong. <laughs> okay, It's impossible for any one of us, except maybe for Evander Holyfield, to get there and stop Mike Tyson. And he never stopped it. He raped her. He went to the jail because of yeah. that. So I think right now people are a little bit more concerned about that because the cultural revolution changed a lot of stuff, a lot of things, a lot of ways that males are relate, rela having relationship with females and the way they are thinking. The people are a little bit more conscious about that. But I'm pretty sure that m my age, m my my generation, maybe is the one that really is start to think about that. Because South Africa is the country in the world who has the, the highest rates of penile fractures. And this happens because they are this, the country in the world they have the greatest hates of rapes. So females, they are not able like to fight against their aggressors. So they let the men penetrate and they sit and they break the penis. Really? To defend themselves. So it's I think like the Western society, the development the developed countries, they are a little bit more aware, but you still can go like on other places in the world that you still have the same mindset that they had like 40 years ago, 60 mm -hmm. years ago. Uh, Gary Morris, uh, younger generation responsibility for men? I think it's safe to say that my generation is kind of the result of the errors of the previous generations. When it came to like sexual responsibility, we kind of learned from or the result of saying, hey, it's not okay to sexually assault women anymore. And if you do, there is you now. mind if I correct you? Yeah. Was never okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but. Uh, yeah, I'm not saying it was ever okay, but <laughs> yeah. as a society, it was more hush-hush. And now suddenly, if it happens, you can go public with it. And hopefully there are consequences, but that's a rabbit hole of a discussion. And so today, the, the number one most important thing is mutual consent. If you walk across ULR campus, you cannot look in any direction without seeing three or four posters that... Talk about consent. Really? Um, new student orientation, one of the biggest things is Trojan Wars, which is like a two and a half hour sex talk. And an hour of that is talking about the the intricacy of, of consent and how it's supposed to be mutual and continuous. Colleges nowadays are getting away from the party mentality where, hey, go to a party, get a girl drunk, and that's that. And now it's you take responsibility and make sure that she is sober enough to say yes, and that she continues to stay sober enough. To so say is yes. that a, is that a conscious thinking process among guys your age than now? You think? Yeah, for the most part, you're always going to have the bad apple that doesn't think about it, and it's unfortunate that it still exists today. But for the most part, guys have become very consent orientated, especially like in Hollywood. In that which is now the kind of the talking point of sexual assault. Many, many male actors are now continuously preaching consent, which is an amazing thing to see, especially after kind of the the rise of the Me Too movement and just how many sexual assaults happened and just just kind of buried under the rug. The issue is that there's been a disproportionate abuse of women kind of over time when we live in a patriarchal society so that it's been a very gradual kind of evolution within our society both within the legal system to provide rights and equality to women 
Uh, you can see the change in the, in the labor market as increasingly more women become physicians. Uh, every yes. law school that in the United States, as a matter of fact, has more women in their law school than they do have men. So you can see that um, this movement towards an egalitarian society is on the move. But uh, there is probably one area that we also have to think about as well because it happens on occasions and it's something that is also inappropriate and unethical. And that is that in some cases, uh, males become uh, accused of acts or, or they're, they're said that they've acted inappropriately and there was no intent, but that it's filtered through because that we're going through a re-socialization, which is important because sexism is alive and well, but that sometimes uh, an individual may say something, may do something, and because of the new socialization, it can be interpreted in a way where the male is actually harmed uh, inappropriately. It's, this is, it's not a correct interpretation, and their reputations can be impacted, uh, their lives can be impacted, and it is something that in this uh, time when we're really going through a, a, a shift and an evolution in gender socialization, it's important to also make sure that the rights of males are also protected as well. You have to think like that. Where you will meet your partner usually is at your school okay, or at your job, at your work. And sometimes people are just like, sometimes they even want like to get out with a, with a, with a co-worker and they make a, a advance, but it depends how far goes this advance. Sometimes the guy just can't say, oh, you're very pretty today. You look nice. Yeah. And some people just think, well, this is inappropriate. You should not do that. And right now we have like this, it's even, it's harder to say it's excessive, but it's not excessive, but it's people are very like, don't touch me or something like that because uh, you are like transpassing my, my limits and all. Sometimes it's not even the intention or sometimes it's the intention because he wants something with you for real. You're not going to say, look, you are pretty it's, or you are nice today or, oh, you really smells well because you're, perfume is nice or something like that doesn't mean that you are like yeah. be disrespectful with the lady so it sometimes it's just a compliment gary i, I kind of like the the idea of social restructure and so we as a society kind of flipping back and forth on, on the two extremes at sometimes sometimes gang mentality will occur and they'll attack an innocent man for hearsay and sometimes we'll just kind of brush off legitimate reports of sexual assault and it's extremely unfortunate and terrible that it, we can go from these extremes but it's definitely to be expected when we are still trying to figure out exactly where that the exact road that we want to go down so a lot of young people are kind of iffy on especially like public displays of affection even compliments and men in particular are very kind of fidgety especially because they don't know exactly what the limits of who they're talking to are. And if they cross that limit, even on accident, there is a degree of responsibility, even at what I was saying, hey, you look pretty. I mean, you still owe it, owe it to the person that you have now made uncomfortable to kind of 
rectify that well, situation. Can I give advice for females? Sure. If you really think the guy is just crossing the lines, just tell him the first time. Don't be afraid to tell. And no. I'm pretty sure that the most of guys will stop and we're not going to do anything. And he, and if he continues to be inappropriate, so go ahead and take the measures that you think is important mm -hmm. to stop it. Mm -hmm. But the first time the guy said something and you think it's inappropriate, just say to him, and you will see it here. We'll probably stop. Oh yeah. We had a class where we and we discussed it was sexism in uh, advertising because it sex sells. That's why I think it's such a great topic. And of course, uh, the uh, bodies of women often become dissected so that everything from you know you're looking at just the body but not the head. And so there are a lot of kind of insulting you know elements in it when you really look at, at advertising. And this was a particular uh, movie I showed my students about how advertising and they pay millions of dollars to convince people about this and there was uh, and, and it's real you know where they actually dismember the bodies of women they're focusing on selling uh, making sure that women know their bodies are ugly and so you need bras you need uh, all kinds of stuff to make yourself pretty because it's a whole focus on making you look pretty for the men and then uh, there was one um, Adver advertisement in there and it was a baked potato uh, that was an open baked potato and it had a Tabasco sauce bottle in it and it was shaking the drops of the Tabasco sauce into the baked potato and then the, the moderator for this particular advertisement says you know they pay millions of dollars for this this look at this this is you know, the Tabasco bottle is having sex with this baked potato. <laughs> and so I, you know, so my point there, and I brought it up with my students is, now here's an interesting filter, because the woman who did this, and she did a very good job, she saw everything as a form of sexual exploitation. And, and for me, I, t I would tell my students, I say, I'm one of those guys that with my baked potato, I like to put Tabasco sauce in my baked potato. And I said, I never would have ever remembered things. Like, my baked potato, this bottle's having sex with my baked potato. I said, and don't get me wrong, every time I do it now, that's what I'm yeah. thinking. <laughs> and, you know, she's changed the way I thought, I think. But that's a filter. And, and that is the way where you can, you know, if you, if you think everything is sexism or everything is racism, and any event, then, and that is the way interpreted, we also need to know that uh, our students and our citizens need to know that we have filters, not, uh, and our filters sometimes blind us to actually seeing what the reality is, mm -hmm. and it's not mm -hmm. actually the way you think it is. If you mm -hmm. want another example, just watch any beer advertising. There is always a wonderful, perfect woman with the most amazing body. Bikini. Bikini, usually <laughs> yeah. bikini or yeah. bras, okay? Or if a small, yeah. short, bras, high heels, holding a beer and show you that this is the thing that you need to do. They, they explore yeah. sex yeah. for sale, for sale. And if you just look at the porn industry, porn industry, it's almost a hundred, I can tell you 110% with the goal to make men be excited. The porn stars, they are, completely the stereotype of the perfect woman in the mind of the man. They have big breasts, big butts, nice legs, 
They're always in high heels. And they're always ready for sex 36 hours per day. <laughs> Gary, your thoughts on that one? <laughs> yeah, um, and it goes beyond television. The video game industry is notoriously bad at using sex for to increase sales revenue. If you take a look at the stereotype of the RPG game, the male is always wearing giant armor that protects him from could protect him from a cannon. The and the female is wearing this bikini-looking chainmail that protects nothing. Especially for someone who plays a lot of video games, it makes no sense. Like, why? And yeah. Recently, and like as I matured, I'm like, oh, wait, I know exactly what that is. That's using the female body to uh, attract more male gamers because yeah. uh, males are the predominant gamer right now. Or in the makeup industry, is even worse at it. The Maybelline, it, their slogan, maybe she's born with it, maybe it's Maybelline, can be translated to maybe she's born pretty, or maybe it's just layers of makeup. Um, <laughs> and it has certainly caused. A fair share of problems, especially uh, mostly in female mentality, body shaming. Yeah. When you're constantly exposed to it and you're not the quote unquote perfect body, it's gonna cause depression and it's gonna cause eating disorders or this idea that hey, you have to have plastic surgery, otherwise people aren't gonna like you. Especially nowadays, you can make everything you want at the computer. You can make the sky that was gray sunny. And you can make the body that was not perfect, perfect. Mm -hmm. There is a joke. Uh, in fact, there is a there is an article that shows that the, I think it was in Playboy. They put one of the playmates over there. They put they did so much, so many Photoshop that they, she doesn't have a, a navel anymore. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the, you know, uh, let me just say that I, that I will predict that just as they have focused on every part of a woman's body and that it needs something. It, whether it's her hair, her eyebrows, her lips, her her nails, her toenails, her feet, her knees, you name it. There's a it's not right. Yeah. It needs something to make her pretty. Prettier. They're focusing on males now. They will oh, yeah. that market for males is there and they are real and they've already started it, but the same thing is gonna happen because it's a way of selling you know and, and kind of letting you know your body is bad well it happens already with a lot of older adults anyway so that older adults get a lot of of uh, advertisements on how to get rid of the wrinkles how to make you look younger and all kinds of stuff and the it's it, but it, the, the males have not gotten the whole range of every piece of your body is ugly and you're going to need this yeah. to, to make it better but it's headed that way yes yes well, absolutely <laughs> this, leads, oh, yeah. this leads a lot of other issues as well right now they are like trying to sell the deficiency deficiency of testosterone as a problem for males and this just goes away with the, your age it starts to decrease the production sure. of testosterone but right now you have the aging medicine that is telling people to start to use testosterone because the levels of testosterone is low. So like this, you can make like, be a, have like a, a body of as Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> with <laughs> eight years old. There is a doctor, he is a doctor, unfortunately, <laughs> that sells that in the internet. I am the guy that will make you with 80 years old looks like Sylvester Stallone with 30. And uh, he... And he, he says he uses the testosterone in like uh, in super physiologic concentrations in their bodies and 
we know this is... So is that male vanity? I think it's like the eternal source of the youth fountain, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is a thing that is there since like the... Since the humanity is humanity, everybody <laughs> wants to be young. Right. How does the length of a relationship impact sex drive? Let's go, let's go from the young to the older on that one. How does the length of a relationship and sex drive? I think short-term relationships, definitely you'll see much higher sex drive in men, mainly because it's the, the honeymoon phase where you can't find any flaws in your partner. Everything they do can excite you, and it's always 24-7 love, dove, and all the mushy stuff. But as that relationship goes on and you kind of start to realize the flaws in your partner and they, and they do the same to you, it kind of, sex drive just kind of levels out. It doesn't become this, hey, let's have sex every three days. It's just more... How many years do you think it takes for it to level from a young perspective? From my brief research into like relationships and psychology, honeymoon phases generally last six, seven months, but there's definitely going to be ones that last longer. High school relationships are really bad at that, mainly because hormones play an issue into that. So I think once a person hits maturity and gets past that six-month honeymoon phase, sex drive definitely starts leveling out. In some instances, depending on the male, it could be level out really, really high, or depending on the male, it could just kind of be a thing that just randomly pops up every now and then and then just kind of sinks back down. Dr. Machado? Well, I will give you a long answer. You can edit if you want. All right? <laughs> <laughs> what I can tell you is humans are, they are primates. There is no society of primates that the, they are monogamics. All right? They always will have more than one partner. We know by studies that this part of relationship that will make like in love, you're going to be like in love, passionate about them. takes about two years to go away. How do you know that? We know because they put people in an MRN machine and they show a picture for the beloved one for them. And people who have relationships up to two years, there's an area in their brains that's called nucleus accumbus that shines when they saw the beloved one. And people who have relationships more than that doesn't shine anymore after two years. So we know this will be like the maximum stuff that will be. However... As soon as you get your partner gets pregnant, okay, the female body starts to produce some different kind of hormones. The most common one, the most like famous one is the oxytocin that makes her smells be different. You cannot feel the smell, but your body feels the smell, all right? And this makes you bind with your partner for seven years. Really? Yes. Wow. Why? Because in the nature standpoint of view, it means this is the time that you need to create your offspring, raise your offspring, and let them go away to the nature. All right. Wow. So nature standpoint of view thinks that if a person with 90 years old, with seven years old, they are ready to go and <laughs> fight against the lion, okay, <laughs> at the savanna. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so, but of course, culture change a lot of stuff, a lot of uh, the way that you see everything. And it's not only that. You can bind different stuff. You can bind a different way with your partner. You can have a partner that you like because you like to talk with them and chat with them. You can see your kid growing and uh, 
there's the other joys. You like to travel with them. They are nice. You, s you laugh with them, and this changed the way. But like in the nature's standpoint of view, you are not made to be <laughs> to to have a monogamic relationship for more than seven. Years. So that's where they come with the seven-year itch. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Richard, what do you think about the, the length of relationships? Well, it, it's, there's a complexity to that uh, question because um, the initial attraction a lot of times is physiological. And I agree with Jerry that, you know, that it kind of lasts for a, usually a short period of time. Sometimes it could be six months. Sometimes it could be one month. Sometimes it could be two years, sometimes five years. Mm -hmm. So that, that this attraction <coughs> to individuals uh, varies in many cases a lot of it depends on the uh, type of um, uh, experimentation that the the couple actually get involved in in terms of trying different things and really trying to keep an excitement in terms of physiological but for most relationships they evolve you know there are lots of things that intensify that relationship in terms of travel knowledge about themselves a sense of, of compatibility with what they like to eat, where they like to go. Like, I like to have a glass of wine, you know, with my wife. We get together. And so there are things that happen that, that where the relationship evolves and it evolves in different ways. So there may not be the same, uh, you know, physical, you know, sexual attraction. It may still be there. Uh, for some individuals, they don't. It, it, they just don't have it. But the relationship itself actually strengthens in other ways, and it allows them to continue. Given that, as I said, the complexity, uh, almost half of all relationships end in divorce. Right. And, you know, of those that do divorce, 90% get remarried. Of those that have remarried and are in their second relationship, there's a 60% chance they'll divorce and they'll marry a third time. So it's a very, very complex thing. Some of it's associated with uh, a physical attraction. Some of it is associated with a sense of adventure or wanting to do different things or go different places. And so it's a very, very complex issue that's real hard to narrow down to like, there are just two or three variables that'll explain this. There are a lot of factors that are involved in it. Good thing is, is that, uh, like I said, about 50% of marriages do last their entire time. And it doesn't mean that they're problem-free. Uh, about 20% of those are often there are lots of issues and problems and relationships they often stay in because of the children. And it, you know, once the children are gone, that relationship often breaks up. But that there is a, uh, for many of them, the older they have stayed together, there is a sense of devotion, a, a, a sense of you know, uh, knowing the patterns of their lives, and, and, and often you can see a real strength that they stay together. In many cases, they often die very close to each yeah, other. In right. terms of, we, uh, the, mostly males, by the way. It's the males that are more likely to die within a close period with their spouses uh, that they've been married to most of their lives. Mm -hmm. If they die, it's used. There's a kind of a, a period of time where they tend to just have what we call a terminal decline where they actually tend to lose that will to mm -hmm. live when because they've been together with this person so long. And for males, we don't have the uh, external support networks that often women have that carry them through uh, the loss of someone that has really been so So does that um, substitute for sex drive then? Yes. yes. Yeah, that is exactly the case. Just think like that. 
we are animals, but we evolved to have a culture as any other animal in Earth has evolved. So it's not only like the bestiality part of our animal body that is working. Our brains, our souls, whatever you want to call it, they have a very big part in the sex drive and the way that you are looking for to have pleasure. Mm -hmm. So it's not only sex that gives you pleasure. This went away when we came down from the trees, start to walk, start to have a society, and this changes everything in, in the, the human civilization and the way that we deal with sex as well. Jerry, did you have a last thought? Yeah, um, really good point on kind of the more animalistic behaviors that humans can exhibit. However, humans are, are herd animals. That We don't have claws to fight a lion. We don't have <laughs> incredible speed to outrun a jaguar. Our safety is in numbers. And I think we took that old evolutionary idea of, hey, if we stick to the group, we'll be safe. And that kind of helped mold our, not really the, the need for a sex drive to carry on a relationship at that point. Mainly because you're with another person. And so in the wild, your chances of being eaten went from 100% to 50-50%. When culture got added, we kind of see it as now, well, we really don't need to reproduce. So we can just kind of stick with this person for as long as this relationship carries on and when if it in that if it breaks find someone new remarry and if that one breaks find someone new and remarry which is why i think remarriage rates are so high because we are very social and connective driven animals and you see this in young people a lot coffee shop meetups not out of interest of sex but mainly because they just want to talk to somebody mm -hmm. um or social groups that are 30 40 people big now sex has nothing to do with it it's just human connection that's desired. I certainly hope you've enjoyed this generational discussion on the male sex drive. Be sure and tune in next month for the female generational perspectives on female sex drive with our special guest host, Sarah Kellogg. I do want to thank my guests for being with me here today. Uh, Gary Morris, he's currently in the Master's uh, of Science in Biology program here at UALR. Gary, thanks for being with me here today. I'm glad being here. And uh, Dr. Bruno Machado uh, is a uro urologist with UAMS and also has the Men's Sexual Health Clinic. Clinic, okay, clinic. Men's Sexual Health <laughs> Clinic at UAMS. My, my trip. Dr. Machado, thanks so much for being here. Dr. Machado has an Instagram. Over there, I'm posting every day something about men's sexual health. Very so good. if you want to follow me, it would be nice. My Instagram is bmachado. It spells M-A-C-H-A-D-O-M-D. MD. Very good. Okay. And then uh, Dr. Terry Richard has been, uh, he's a professor emeritus here in sociology. He's been a past guest on the program many times. He was on our first program 19 years ago. Dr. Richard, so good to have yeah, you here yeah. and to see you again <laughs> after all these years. Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow is produced for KUAR in partnership with the University of Arkansas at Little Rock and UAMS. You can find us online at KUAR.org under Programs, and this and many of our past programs are available there. You can uh, send your comments, if you have some, to YTT at KUAR.org. I might mention, too, that as we're recording today, uh, we've gone way over our normal <laughs> limits, so the podcast of this program, you'll catch a lot of stuff that we've had to edit out. But uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month. Be sure and catch it, because that'll be the ladies.